Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Christocentric, based out of our study on the book of Philippians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. We're going to continue our series, Christocentric, today as we read more um, on the life of Paul, the thought life of Paul. Today we're going to explore an area of Paul's thought life um, that's fascinating. So Lord, as we come to your word, we just say that we believe convictionally that this thing is holy, inspired, and errant from you towards us. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us today through it. Jesus, I'm reminded of your words to the Pharisees this morning when you said uh, to them that they search your word because they believe that in it they have a life. But your words to them is that they don't know your voice at all. Lord, we know that, it, that it's possible to read the scriptures without hearing your voice, without really engaging with you, God. We pray that during the next 30 minutes, as we read your scriptures, we would, we would encounter your voice. So, Lord, let me decrease and you increase. Guard my lips. Let this time be anointed. Let these moments be holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Charles Spurgeon was 22 years old and preaching to thousands. Remember we talked recently about the fact that he began to pastor the largest Baptist church in London at the age of 19. You don't want to know what I was doing at the age of 19. You would never look at me the same again. Um, At 22, he was preaching to thousands publicly and wrestling with severe depression privately. He had twin boys at home. How many of you know that sleep deprivation is of the enemy? It is a real thing. Twin boys at home. And one night he was preaching in Surrey Gardens Music Hall to a packed house. Thousands and thousands of people in a music hall listening to him preach. And someone thinking to play a trick on the crowd shouted fire. And the whole crowd... um, stirred up in a frenzy, stampeded out of the room, and because of that frenzy, seven people died and over 20 were injured, and Charles Spurgeon was haunted by that account. His wife wrote that um, after that event, such deep, violent anguish overtook him so that she thought he would never preach again. He would struggle with physical sickness, infections, gout over and over And many of his critics would say that his physical ailments surely were the judgment of God. And at 24, he wrote this. He said, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child. And yet I knew not what I wept for. He was embarrassed of his depression. At times felt like it was sinful. At times felt like he needed to push through and be a man of faith. At times he knew that he needed sunlight and exercise. But it was a lifelong struggle that in moments seemed that it would get the best of him. And for years now, I've drawn strength from the life of Charles Spurgeon because I have these bouts myself of depression. I've drawn strength from Spurgeon because Spurgeon goes down in history. He's known as the Prince of Preachers. He is not known as the Prince of Depression. 
Most don't know that Spurgeon struggled to get out of bed, would crawl his way up to the pulpit and preach with absolute passion and clarity, perfectly Christ-centered, expository messages that cut thousands to the heart. The man struggled with depression, but he never laid down to it. And although he wrestled for years, he would go down in history as maybe the best, one of the best preachers that ever walked the face of earth. No one calls him the prince of depression. They call him the prince of preaching. Remembered for his faithfulness, his zeal, his deep love and passion for Jesus, not his melancholy. He suffered, but he suffered well. He struggled, but he fought the good fight of faith until his last day. He was faithful to the scripture. He struggled, but never quit. And you can say of Charles Spurgeon that he was a man who wrestled with depression, but you can never say of Charles Spurgeon that he was a man who quit. He had a red heart burn for Jesus. And there is this truth from John 16, this wonderful promise that Jesus gives to you. I want to, I want to just lay this wonderful promise before you. In this world, you will have trouble. Everyone say hallelujah. That is a promise for you this morning. In this world, you will have trouble. You cannot escape it. You can't run fast enough from it. And Christianity is not about getting right with God so that you never have problems again. Jesus says, get right with me and you're going to still have problems. Jesus says, count the cost before you follow me. You'll be required to pick up your cross and endure persecution, suffering, shame. The enemy will pull all of hell's tricks out to stop you. You will have trouble. You have a kick me signed super glued to your back. Go ahead and get it tattooed on your back right above your little butt crack dragonfly. Kick me. That is you. You may have some good streaks where everything feels like sunshine and coconut ice cream, but don't fool yourself. It will not last. You will have trials, sorrow, anguish. The man or woman that you sit with this morning who you love so deeply, one day they will pass away. You will have loss. You will know moments of fear and fretting. You will have troubles. And Jesus finishes that statement with this, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So the promise is you can't avoid trouble. You will have trouble, but you should take heart because I've overcome the world. You can't control whether or not you will have trouble. You will have trouble. What you control is whether or not you take heart. Whether or not you endure. What does it mean to take heart in this truth that Christ has overcome the world? Now we're talking Christianity In our culture, we're screaming that Christianity is all about your personal comfort. That's not the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus is that you should count the cost, pick up your cross, be willing to suffer. In this world, you'll have trouble, but learn. This is the truth. You learn to take heart that I have victory over the entire world. Take heart that I have conquered hell. I have conquered sin. I have conquered death. Spurgeon had trouble, but Spurgeon took heart. You have trouble, but will you or will you not learn to take heart? And if we've established that we will have trouble, we will have trials, we will suffer, we better learn what Jesus means when he says to take heart in this truth that I have overcome the world. We will suffer. Suffering will come. How do we suffer well? 
Now, the epistle of Philippians is called the epistle of joy. Many scholars call it the epistle of joy. But we've learned in our series up to this point that Paul is in prison. He's chained. He's a traveling evangelist, a man who's been busy all his life. And now he sits in prison. He tells us that he's been hungry, possibly hangry, y'all. You do not want to see my wife hangry. Paul tells us that so far in the letter, he's already told us that he has enemies with the Gentiles, enemies with the Jews, even enemies with the Christians. Many Christian preachers now preach with selfish ambition and hopes to embarrass him. And today we'll learn that he is in prison waiting for a trial. And there's a chance that at the conclusion of this trial, he will be executed. He is patiently waiting for the moment in which he will stand before a court. And the court will either say your, your, your guilt is acquitted or they will say you will now be executed. Paul is waiting for his sentence, contemplating his future execution. So he is lonely, hungry, persecuted, future death looming over his head, yet he writes what we call the epistle of joy. How does he write the epistle of joy in this moment? Why does he write the epistle of joy in this moment? What is joy in this moment? Again, I've had bouts of depression my whole life. And so as I've discipled young guys who struggle with depression, I have a bad habit, maybe a good habit, I'm not sure, I haven't processed this yet, of telling them to quit whining. I'm always telling them that they're whiny, quit whining. And my application of this text for years now has been, Paul is in prison, hungry, tired, waiting for death, and he doesn't whine. You whine, quit whining. That's not a bad application of the text, but it's not a good one either. I was convicted as I studied this passage. I I realized that in our passage this morning, I'll read it to you in a moment, um, that Paul explicitly quotes a line from the book of Job. Now, I'm thinking as I'm reading this epistle of joy, which I've loved for years, taught for years now. Why in the world is Paul quoting Job in Philippians chapter one? And why have I never seen it before? But it's explicit. He quotes the September. Septuagint line of Job. So remember that the Hebrew was, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was translated into Greek, and the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. So Paul in Philippians 1 quotes the Septuagint word for word from Job chapter 13. From Job chapter 13, uh, where Job says, Though you slay me, yet I trust you. I will argue my ways before you, and I am confident that this will turn out for my deliverance. In our passage this morning in Philippians chapter 1, Paul will say um, in chapter 1, 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. And he quoted that phrase from Job perfectly. And as I've thought about Caleb screaming at people, quit whining, Paul was in prison, I realized this week that Paul quotes Job in prison because I assume that Paul is thinking about Job in prison. Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. How many of you know the things you think about are the things you talk about? And so as Paul is in prison writing to the Philippians who are concerned that he will soon be murdered for his faith, Paul begins to draw on the truths of Job's life. So the question becomes, how does Paul get to joy? 
We are not Eastern mystics. I am not trying to teach you to reach nirvana. I am not saying that the Christian life is about being able to so disengage from your natural circumstances that you can somehow float along and never experience pain or sorrow. That is not how Paul lived. Paul tells us in just a moment that he's so thankful that Ephroditus does not die because that would have added sorrow onto his sorrow. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 9 that he has unceasing anguish as he waits for the salvation of the um, Jewish people. Paul is not a man who never experiences sorrow, but in his sorrow, he settles, he brings himself to a place of trust and faith in God. In this moment, he identifies himself with the person of Job, the righteous suffering servant. You remember Job is the most righteous man on earth, but suffers and suffers extremely well, painfully well. And so Paul's going to quote Job in this moment as he writes to the Philippian church and says, he says, no, I have joy because I'm confident that this will turn out for my deliverance. He's wrestling with God, contended with God. He has, he has had, I'm assuming, sleepless nights as he's thought through the implications of this trial and death. And I don't think that he was exempt from ever having to feel anxiety. I think he had to settle anxiety like you have to settle anxiety. And I think he settles it as he wrestles through the book of Job, wrestles through the scriptures. And Paul determines that he, in his suffering, will suffer well. Touch your neighbor and say, suffer well. We today will explore the words of Paul and try to figure out how he suffers well, why he suffers well. What does he know that we don't know about suffering well? Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart to be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So again, Paul is in jail, hungry, tired, lonely. The man is a traveling evangelist and he's locked up, sitting still. And he writes to the Philippians and he does not write, I am sorrowful, I am tired, I am depressed. He writes, I will rejoice For I know. I will rejoice for I know. Paul knows something that causes him to rejoice even in this season. Paul rejoices because of what he knows. Your doctrine matters. What do you know this morning? Our culture is screaming at us that your doctrine really doesn't matter. What matters is that you live a nice life. And that's a really great sentiment until you're staring death in the face. 
And when death stares you in the face, what matters is what you know. Paul says, I rejoice because I know. Doctrine matters when the poop hits the fan. Reading the Bible matters. Having a devotional life matters. What do you know, Paul? What is Paul sure of? Paul says, death is knocking on my door, but I'm rejoicing because I know something. I am facing death, but I rejoice because of what I know. When trial comes, whether you sink or swim, to some extent, will be dependent on what you really know. What truths you're really grounded upon. And as Paul awaits his trial, it's as if his life unravels. It's as if the walls of his life have fallen down. And for a brief moment, we are given this extreme Blessing to be able to gaze our eyes upon the foundation of the apostle. You could look at Paul's life and say, oh, he was a great preacher and a brilliant philosopher and a great theologian. And all of those things are true. But for a moment, as Paul faces death, he tears down the sheetrock falls and he says, now I'll show you what I know. Now you have been given the privilege to look your eyes upon the foundation of the man's life. What are the truths that uphold this apostle's life? How does he suffer well as the storms come? What, what does he know? He tells us three things. First, I know that deliverance will come. Now, pay very close attention because he tells us at least three times in this epistle that he is not sure whether or not he will die. Him saying, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance is not saying, I know that I will not die. He's not saying that. He'll tell us over and over, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, but I'm not sure if I'll be delivered. What does he mean? He means that ultimately, even death is victory for him. What undergirds his life is that the government can take his clothes, beat his back. They've done it a thousand times now. They can force him to go hungry. They can rob the breath from his lungs, but they cannot take from him his deliverance, his salvation. There is a truth that Paul builds his life upon that says that even death is victory. Death cannot steal from me. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. His salvation has been sealed by the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus. When all is said and done, he is victorious. Ultimately, the greatest battle has already been won. Your greatest battle in life is finished. It was finished the moment on the cross of, cross of Calvary where Jesus breathed his last breath. Your victory was won. The ultimate battle has been finished. It is done. Paul says, underneath all of my life, I live from this truth. I will be delivered. I know the end. And the end is victory. He's very sure of that. I rejoice because I know that I will be delivered. He endures suffering, trial, pain, physical pain and emotional pain, undergirded by this truth. Second, Paul tells us that he's sure that he will finish well. He says he's sure that God will give him the strength and courage 
to testify before the courts of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says in verse 20, he's confident that I will not be put to shame in anything and that with all boldness, Christ will even now be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He's confident that he will not be put to shame and that he will have boldness. Now, what is he reflecting upon here? He's considering the moment in which he is indicted before a court and they will ask him to either, either recant his views or die. That's a weighty thing to think about. When you stand before a court and they say, you will be brutally murdered or you can recant your views. Which one do you choose? And every one of us has a body of flesh. And the last thing I want is my back being torn up. Nobody wants to see my love handles getting stripped with a whip. You know what I'm saying? You don't want to see that kind of jiggle. Not today. Not today. As he thinks about this moment in which he could be indicted and he would be asked to recant his views or die. He says, I'm confident that I will finish well. I am confident that I will with courage testify of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. I am confident that in this moment I will exceed, I will excel in testifying of the goodness of Jesus. I am confident that I will finish well. This is the truth of Paul's life. I'm confident that I will finish well. Then he tells us why he's confident that he will finish well. Because of the prayers of the saints. Verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit. So through the prayers of the saints and the provision of the Spirit, Paul will be able to stand with boldness. Through the prayers of the saints, God will provide provision by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is confident that he will finish well, but he will not finish well because he has a very strong backbone. He will finish well because the Holy Spirit never leaves or forsakes him. He will finish well because in the trial, the Holy Spirit will be his strength. Because when God leads you into fire, God stands with you in the fire. Paul is confident that he will finish well because the Spirit of God has promised to be his strength and to never leave him nor forsake him. He is confident that he will have boldness, boldness, he says. I will be bold in this moment, I'm sure of it. Not because I'm bold, but because the Holy Spirit doesn't leave me. I will speak with great passion and anointing. Not because I'm wise, but because the Spirit will not leave me. I have confidence. I am sure. I rejoice in this moment of great sorrow because I am sure that the Holy Spirit will not abandon me. God supplies the power to endure the trial. God never leaves or forsakes. He doesn't abandon us in our trying moments. No, He doesn't abandon us, but He supplies more grace, more strength. He draws even closer to us. It's in our moments of greatest agony that we sense His presence so sweet. Paul says, I will not be abandoned. Remember, Paul stood and watched Stephen receive stones to his face as he looked into heaven. And Stephen said, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the 
the throne. And Stephen, although he was stoned, received a violent death, was comforted by the Holy Ghost even in that moment. Paul says, I'm confident. I rejoice because the Holy Spirit will be my boldness, will be my courage, will be my strength. Third, he is sure that whether he lives or dies, Jesus will be glorified. I am confident that whether in death or in life, Christ will be exalted in my body. Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He is sure that whether he lives or dies, Jesus will be exalted. If he receives a death sentence, Christ will be glorified by his faithful and bold martyrdom. If he is not sentenced to death, then Christ will be exalted as he continues to minister to the nations. But it's this truth that brings resolve and peace to Paul's life. That God will not allow a sacrifice to lay on the altar unconsumed. In Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, Paul says that his life is a living sacrifice. His life is fully devoted to God. And whether he lives, Christ will be glorified. And whether he dies, Christ will be glorified. But either way, God will use him. And we talked last week about the fact that that is actually the deepest desire of the Christian. To be used of God. Paul says, I am not shaken in this moment. I rejoice because I know that God will use me in my life or in my death. If I die, the name of Jesus will be proclaimed faithfully as the flames take my body. Christ will be exalted. Souls will be saved. The church will be emboldened. I rejoice because God uses me every day. So what are you sure of this morning? Are you sure that even death can't steal your deliverance? Are you sure that God will give you strength by His Spirit to boldly stand and proclaim the goodness of Jesus even in the darkest nights? Are you sure that Jesus will receive glory from your life or from your death? That even if all of hell comes against you, God will still use you to bring glory to His name? How sure are you this morning? Paul begins this passage by saying, I rejoice because I know. Next, the layers of Paul's life unfold as he allows us to witness a fascinating scene just for a brief moment. Paul contemplates his own death. Here in this very familiar passage of Scripture, Paul contemplates his own death. It's a fascinating moment. If I could choose between life or death, I would be hard-pressed to do so. I am hard-pressed between the two. I'm not sure which would be better. Now, this feels morbid at first glance, that Paul wants to die, hopes for death, longs for the grave. But it's vital that you notice that Paul is not quitting on life. He's not saying, I hate life, therefore I want to die. He is saying that to me, to live is Christ. I love life. Life is an expression of Christ. And to me, death is gain. He is saying that I am allowed to, in Jesus, have my cake and eat it too. Both options are good. 
To live is Christ and to die is gain. He is not wallowing in sorrow saying, I wish I could die. He is saying that to live would be beautiful and to die would be beautiful because to live is to express Christ and to die is to have Christ. I have joy in this moment because all of me is wrapped up in Christ. Life and death are Christ. Death does not steal from me. Death gives me the greatest gift that I will ever be given. What was once the most terrifying moment for all of humanity in Christ is now the most exciting, thrilling moment for all of humanity. To die is to gain. Paul contemplates death and says, I don't know if I'd rather live or die. I'm unsure. Both are so wonderful. In prison, hungry, tired. Let's look closer. In verse 21, maybe the most frequently recited scriptures, he says, For to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. We've, many of us have memorized the scripture, but how many times have you stopped to actually consider what Paul means? To live is Christ. Think on it for a moment. Could you say that with Paul this morning? Could I look death in the face with Paul and say, To live is Christ. That all of my life is an expression of Christ Jesus himself. Paul's saying that my life is an embodiment of Jesus himself. He tells us in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 that he has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. He's saying I've died to my own selfish dreams, ambitions, wants, desires. I'm dead to all of that. All I live now to is the desires of Christ. I go where he wants me to go. I say what he wants me to say. I am who he wants me to be. And as people encounter me, they actually encounter Christ. My life is a continuance of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is not on the earth today, but he is on the earth today because to live is Christ. Can you say that with Paul this morning? That to live is Christ. Would your kids say that about you? When I think about dad, I think about Christ. When I see mom, I see Jesus. Would your coworkers say that about you? When I see you, I see Jesus. Or would they say, when I see you, I see one of those guys on MTV on that show, Jack, you know what? Would they say, when I see you, I experience and know Jesus? Or would they say, when I see you, I think bitterness and, and moping and complaining? Paul says, for, to me, to live is Christ. All of life is Jesus. It's an expression of Jesus himself. Paul's greatest sense of purpose and fulfillment And joy is wrapped up in this truth that every day he lives, Christ is continuing to minister in the earth. And as people encounter him, they are encountering the kindness of Jesus, the sweetness of Jesus. As he teaches and preaches the word of God, the Holy Spirit is anointing his voice. And they are accounting the spirit of Jesus. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells inside of him. And every day he lives, he leaks that spirit out. And when people touch him, they touch the Holy Ghost. And in that sense, living is Jesus. In that sense, living is expressing Jesus and life is wonderful. So in this moment, Paul's contemplating, what is life? If you force me to choose between life and death, I must answer the question, what is life? And then he's saying, oh, all of life is really expressing Jesus. 
And then he says, and what is death? Oh, death is being totally wrapped up in Jesus. Death is being snatched from this fragile body and being sucked up into the beauty and wonderful of Jesus. This is the key to suffering well. To know that all of life is about Jesus and death is gain. Death is coming to fully embrace the beauty and wonder of Christ. To look in his most beautiful eyes. Death is gaining Christ fully. In Jesus, the very thing that feels like loss is gain. Redemption. And finally, after indulging his reflections on death for a moment, he resolves to continue to hope and pray for future life. So he says, I'm I'm hard-pressed to choose between living and dying. Living is Christ, dying is gain. They are both good options. I'm hard-pressed. But then he says... Dying would be better for me, but living would be better for you. So I resolve to choose life. He chooses selflessness for the sake of the Philippian church. So for me, I am not afraid of death. I am not at all afraid of death. I know that the moment I die, I will be snatched in the glory of Jesus. I am not afraid of death. As a son of God, I am not afraid to die. As a dad, I am deathly afraid of death. Because as a dad, I want my kids to know the sound of my voice. I want my kids to grow up with a loving father. I want them to hear the gospel preached for me. I want my little girls, all three of them, and I'm sure by the end of it, we're going to have six more girls. Because estrogen is the river of life that flows through the Allen home. I'm sure of it. But I want them to hear my voice. So on one hand, dying would be beautiful. But on the other hand, dying would be awful. I want to live, not for my sake. It would be better for me to die. But I want to live for the sake of my kids. So the Christian, the real Christian, always chooses life. But we don't choose life for our sake. We choose life because we live selflessly. Joy for Paul is found in selflessness. His life is not about him. If it was about him, death would be better. But his life is for the Philippian church. Death would be better for me, but my life is not about me. My life is about first honoring my wife, loving my wife well, representing Jesus to my wife. Second, about loving those three little estrogen-filled things that roll all over my house well. Third, about loving you well and loving this community well. My life is not about me, and when my life is not about me, I actually experience joy. There's a really beautiful key to the Christian life there, that when you live self-absorbed, you will never have joy. But the moment you realize that life is not about you, you are released to live in joy. And when you live for other people... The the next looming crisis, whether it's financial, whether it's your physical health, whether it's a relationship in your family, every crisis doesn't knock you off your throne. Because losing your money wouldn't be the end of the world. It would stink, yeah. But you trust that God's in control and the money is not what enables you to minister to people. And your health declining stinks and we would stand with you and pray for healing but it's not the end of the world because my life's not about me having perfect health and being comfortable my life is about loving other people well 
And yeah, we want healing. And yes, we're going to continue to press for healing. But even as we wrestle through sickness, we suffer well because life's not about us anyway. And I was so blessed to talk with someone recently who suffers um, with extreme disability. And they were saying, I'm praying for healing and believing for healing. And man, I really want to be healed. But they were saying, but sometimes I think that God might actually have given me a special platform. And more people will listen to me because of this, this, this disability. And he said, if that's so, then I'll continue to suffer. If it's for someone else's good. But ultimately, I'm believing for healing. I want to see God heal me. And I believe one day he will heal me and it will be a wonderful time testimony to the power of Jesus. But he said, my life is caught between those two things. You will suffer well when life's not about you. So on one hand, dying would be beautiful for me. And on another hand, dying would be awful because my life is not about me. So in this fascinating moment of Paul's life where he awaits trial and the chance, the possibility of execution, he tells us that he is rejoicing. He does not tell us that he hasn't struggled with these things or prayed through these issues or that he has somehow found a way to live beyond all emotional anxiety and fear. No, he tells us that he has wrestled down his anxiety and fear. He has taken his thoughts captive in Jesus and he has brought them into submission to the things that he knows. Your doctrine matters because you will, as you suffer, have to lasso in all of your fears, doubts, fretting, anxiety. You will have to bring it under submission to what you know, submission to Christ, what you know to be true. He tells us that he is sure that his doctrine has brought him peace. When all is said and done, he will be delivered. He is sure that he will have strength to endure. He is sure that Jesus will be glorified, whether in his life or in his death. He then rejoices because he's allowed to have his cake and eat it too, to live as Christ, to know and embody and reflect Jesus to his community and to his church, and to die is to fully have Jesus. Both are positives. He says that he will rejoice and not quit on life because, because living is not about him, because ultimately his life is about other people. And in this selfish decision, he has met a new and fresh exciting joy directly from the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, worship team, you can go ahead and come. Charles Spurgeon understood what Paul understood. That trouble comes, but defeat never comes. Paul says, I'm pressed, crushed, but not abandoned. Paul says, I have been shipwrecked, hungry, tired, but many have come to know the name of Jesus through my life. Pressed, but not crushed. Spurgeon understood what Jesus meant when he said, I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Will you have trials in the future? Yes, my friends, yes. You will have trials in the future. Haley's immediate trial is that she's hungry. She's about to start throwing stuff like that donkey from Rampage if somebody doesn't get some food in here. Are you that hungry yet? No. Hangry. That girl get hangry. You will have trial, 
Whether or not you suffer well will be a matter of whether you learn to take heart and what you know through the trial. And how deeply have you really read the scripture and grained these truths into your spirit so that when the storms of life come and shake you, the truths are all that's left to be exposed. Paul has a storm of life that is knocking his house all around, but he stands firm because of the truths that he's built his life upon. How shored up are you by the word of God and the truth of God? And when you are met by the kick me sign on on your back and you finally trip and fall and you go through moments and seasons of sorrow, you need to force yourself to remember Paul in prison. Remember Spurgeon getting out of bed and keep preaching. Remember Paul settling himself in these truths that to live is Christ. To really live and breathe is Christ. It's to know Him in here. It's to hear His sweet voice and to speak it out to the earth. It is to be filled to the overflow. It is to be bound in what theologians call the mystical union, that you are mystically tied in the life of Christ and expressing Him to the earth. And you have to remember that death is gain. It is really immense gain. Remember Paul saying that I'm sure that the Holy Spirit will sustain me. I will finish well, not because I'm strong, but because the Holy Ghost in me is strong. I finish not because I am perfectly stable, but I finish because the Holy Ghost in me is perfectly stable, perfectly consistent, perfectly able. I don't finish because I have perfect insight and perfect wisdom. I finish because the Holy Ghost in me is omniscient, omnipotent. And the Holy Ghost knows how to say those words. Hallelujah. I finish well because the Holy Ghost is in me. And if you feel weary this morning, I want to encourage you as we get ready to do altar ministry to get yourself in the altar and allow the Holy Ghost to strengthen you again. The apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And all through the book of Acts, the scripture tells us that they were filled again. And they were filled again. And they were filled again. The Christian life is not a one and done. The Christian life is a being filled with the Spirit of God and having a sufficient filling of the Holy Ghost today to be able to endure the trials that will come tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.